Hey, I'm Erin Bridgman, a money mindset and management coach for the creative entrepreneur. I'm the girl behind the Wealthy Woman Movement that's reaching thousands and expanding each and every month. And I'm so glad you've decided to join this community too. Welcome to the Wealthy Woman Podcast for creative female entrepreneurs looking to get strategic with their money. I believe that wealthy women will change the world. And in this podcast, we include money-related mindset and management tips and practical business advice you can apply right away. No fluff here. It's time to take action. Let me shoot it to you straight. Talking about money is like talking about sex. It's vulnerable and uncomfortable, but so necessary. And that's why I've created a judgment-free zone where women like you can trade the shame and money skeletons in your closet with empowerment and confidence that helps you master your money. I'm both the creative and the nerd, the no bullshit friend and your hype girl. And I'm excited to be your guide on your money journey. All your dreams are tied to money. So it's time to get that money working for you so you can make your dreams a reality together. Your business should be the catalyst to living your dream life. So don't let your money be the obstacle. Grab your notebook and your favorite drink and let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Wealthy Woman Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have Tia on the show. Welcome, girl. Yay. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And Brent is also here because we are going to have a really organic conversation about real estate. I got to meet Tia in January at the Creative Educators Conference, and we were just chilling in the hotel lobby. And she was just asking so many amazing questions about real estate. And so I thought this would be a really fun episode to just have her come on and almost just like recreate what we did in the hotel lobby. So that's where we're going today in the episode. But before we do, Tia is a freaking rock star in what she does (laughs) and what her and her husband have created. So I'd love for you just to share a little bit about you, Tia, like who you are in business, outside of business, and then we can jump into our conversation. Yes. Okay. I was so excited to be asked to do this because when Erin and I were chatting in the lobby, she is just a wealth of knowledge. And you'll see when we get through this, like I know a little bit about real estate investing here and there from like TV shows, you guys, like that is my knowledge. But then Erin was so giving and she was just a wealth of knowledge pouring out, pouring out. I kept having to condition our conversation and be like, okay, well, like if you want to do something else or like, if you want to go to dinner, feel free because she just gives and gives and gives. So I was so excited for this. A little bit about me. My name is Tia and my husband, Cameron and I have a personal brand called Cameron and Tia. And we are primarily wedding photographers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Then we also do photography business coaching. We have a bunch of offerings from online courses to shop products, templates, guides, really taking photographers through their first three years of their business journey and having all of those resources readily available for them. So we actually met in second grade. We went to elementary school together, which is corny as can be, but we grew up all together. And then we started dating the end of our senior year of high school. And then Cam was into photography, very chill. Like I'm talking college elective vibes to fulfill his art credit. And I was like, Hey, make this a business. Like I have no interest in photography. I was like, let's like get an email address, get a logo. And so we photographed high school seniors part-time until we got engaged and we were like, let's dive in. Let's photograph a couple of weddings. My husband was actually in law school at the time. So he had a very busy schedule, but was like, let's set this three to five kind of vibe. And then we found out really quickly that we are not dip our toes in the water kind of people. We're dive head freaking first. And so from there, everything just snowballed. We built our photography business. A couple of years later, we started educating and then lands us here. So amazing. I love it. (laughs) You've been doing this for how long? So we started photographing seniors in 2012. We started really taking things seriously, trying to make a career out of it in 2016. Hey, over 10 years of exchanging photos for money like yes yes history a while (laughs) I know that you speak at some key events where photographers gather so you're the real deal you're the hype girl thank you girl (laughs) so to sort of frame this conversation what makes you interested in real estate like why were you asking me those questions in the hotel lobby and what makes you lean in and want to learn more yes okay so we have no experience with real estate investing anywhere around us. No one in our family, none of our friends, anything like that, where I feel like a lot of people see interest. To be honest, have you guys heard of Tark El Musa? He was originally on the show with like Christina. It's like an HGTV show. Now he has his own show that's like 
flipping guidance show. I'm sorry. I don't even know what it's called because it's such a casual watch, but it's a flipping show where he like gives education about flipping. It's very scripted, very corny, but it has some education elements in there where I'm like, Oh, this is kind of fire, like free education on HGTV. Let's go. Let's go. Um, yes. And so honestly, that's probably my origin story. I feel like it's one of those things that I know so little about. And then every once in a while I'll get fascinated and I'll get fixated and I'll go down these deep rabbit holes of like, where do I get this knowledge? Where do I kind of figure this out? And I do feel like some elements of it are kind of like there's a curtain over it of if you don't know someone, if you don't have this in, you can't quite find the information as readily available. And so then when I got in this conversation with Aaron, I was like, oh my goodness, here's a girl who's been through it all. You and Brent have like done a whole variety of things and she's willing to answer all these questions. So that's where my real estate investing origin story came from. I love it. I love it. Thanks for sharing. And I know that people listening to the show, this is one of their curiosities as well. Definitely. Is, you know, the show's all about money and, and right. we bring in experts and how you can make your business bring in more money by tapping into people's expertise. But then I also talk about money mindset, money management, and Brett and I, we talk about real estate because for us as entrepreneurs, it's so important to have a plan for investment. We are the ones that create the plan. We don't have an employer handing us a 401k or matching yes. us doing that type of thing. So let's just pretend like we're back in a hotel lobby. Yes. And just start asking us some organic questions and we'll just see where this takes us. Yes, I love. So I'm a listener of the pod. So I've listened to both Aaron and Brent's past two episodes. So everyone should check those out. I'm going to rewind a little bit. And a lot of my questions lie in financing, being an entrepreneur and not knowing where do I start with this? How do you kind of dip your toes in the water? So I know that you guys did HELOC for your initial property. How does that all work? Can you break it down for me? Yes. So I love that question. A HELOC is a home equity line of credit. And from a high level, it's the ability to access part of the equity that you have in your home through a loan. And it's tied to a hard asset, which is your home. The H stands for home. So this was in our second property. So our first investment, our first rental property investment, we had my dad co-sign. That's how we were able to qualify. And we used like a typical for any Freddie mortgage. Like it was totally like nothing leveraging creative financing at all. We had 20,000 bucks. He signed. Yep. We made the deal happen. Then we house hacked. So that was the second thing when we bought our first primary home at about 150,000. Brent, how about we use that example of our home and just then like also go into some of the granulars of a HELOC using that as the example? Yeah, that sounds great. I won't get overcomplicated, but we actually did this twice. We can talk about okay. it again more. So here we'll just talk about the first chapter of it. So we bought it for $150,000 and I think we ended up putting like $75,000 of our own money into the house. There's some, when you talk about HELOCs, I think a lot of people are like, oh, cool. Like you just buy a house and you have a HELOC. And like, well, that's typically not true unless you're putting an astronomical amount of money down on the property when you buy it. So what you have to do is you essentially, when you're doing a HELOC, you're flipping a house, but you don't have to sell it. So you get to, the really, I think, charming part about doing this kind of a model is you get to buy a crappy house make it the way you want to have for your dream home, which for Aaron and I, like we knew enough about real estate and what we wanted that we weren't really finding houses that were like what we wanted to pay full dollar for anyway, because we just yeah. like, so we were able to buy a house, make it the way we want it. And in the process of doing that, increase the value of the home as well as investing our own money in it. So not only do we put the 75,000 into it, but it's, let's just say it's worth another $75,000 more on top of that. So now mm -hmm. we've made our home that we bought for 150. I think it did appraise around $300,000 when we were done. Wow. That makes sense. So we put money yeah. in and you kind of get a dollar, you kind of doubled your money when you put it into the house. So we put 75 in and now the home is worth 150 more, which just from a basis of like scaling your wealth, pretty good idea. Insane. Yes. Um, and you get to live in that house, which is like great because you get to make it how you want it. Totally. So let's say you secure a home. And so for example, our primary residence has just been in a great area that's been booming. And so we have equity on that and just it's raising its rates or it's raising its worth, can you secure a HELOC for that? Or do you need to have like some sweat equity to it? No, you can get a HELOC just regardless, but I'll talk through the math of it. And sometimes yeah. it can, you can be in a pickle based on how much it needs to appreciate. So yeah, okay. another way of saying what we're doing, just to kind of make sure we tie in the two narratives for your home too, is houses appreciate over time, as long as you take care of them. 
And another way of saying what you do in flipping is we force appreciation to occur. So yeah, okay. So we are taking $150,000 home and making it worth 300 by like forcing the appreciation to occur, which is usually like fixing stuff, updating things, making it better, adding bathrooms, converting spaces to make it a nicer home. That naturally happens when you take care of your home. Yeah. It naturally happens if you live in an up and coming space or like a space in your city that is like becoming more and more of a hot commodity. Like, you know, like I would have been able to buy this house for X dollars less five years ago, but now that the area is just going. So you can have just natural appreciation happening like that. What we did was we bought a crappy house in a really like vibing area in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. So the saying is like, buy the worst house on the best block kind of thing that was happening. But then we also forced it because we did a complete renovation of the home. And the $75,000 that we put in, we're saying we cash flowed that. So we figured out how to pull that out through the wedding business, through using like Lowe's credit card that gave us six months, no interest, Home Depot. We basically were able to not take out any loan, any money for that 75. And it would have probably been $150,000 renovation, but we did the sweat equity. I can remember tiling the shower. We painted every wall in the house. Brent, he installed the flooring. He redid the plumb, like all of that stuff. But regardless, if you have an asset that you have bought at a certain place, put money in, and it has appreciated, you can get an appraisal, which is a third party coming in and saying, now your home was worth 306000 But for easy math, we'll say 300000 And we put like 10% down on the home. So our mortgage was like 130. Okay. So right there, we want to take 300,000 and we want to take 90% of the appraised value. Generally, you're going to be able to get a HELOC around that. I think it's like technically like 89.9, blah, 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 whatever. Okay. We just say for easy math, 90% yeah. of the new appraised value would be 270,000. And then we would need to subtract what we already owe. So if our mortgage is 130, they're not going to like lend us money on debt, right? So right. so basically we subtract the 130. So we now have a HELOC at 140,000. Okay. So we have access to $140,000 that we can literally go blow on a boat or whatever. They okay, that was my next question. Okay. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter how you use it. But of course, how we're going to teach and what we're going to say is you should use, if you're going to use that money, you should be using it to invest, to make it money because you, and here's the really cool thing about a HELOC is you don't have to pay interest unless you're deploying the cash. So you can just sit on it. You can just know like, hey, that can be part of your emergency fund or that can be whatever. But once you use it, once it's deployed, that's when you start to pay interest. What was the interest rate? Do you remember? Or how does interest rate work? Yeah, Yeah, it's a good question. So I think at the time we were pretty low. I think it was like four and a half percent or something. Okay. Typically how line of credits are set up is they're almost universally, they're a variable. So they change with the prime rate. So ours now, I think we're at seven and a half and we might be going up to 7.75. They literally are always up and down and, and totally. they just follow the prime rate and, and rates are higher right now. So uh, that kind of just fluctuates as it goes. Yeah, and yeah. so if you're thinking about that versus a credit card or versus some sort of loan you would get, the interest rate is so low compared to, other ways that you might be able to access money. And so for us, it was just like a huge win that we could get a house, have equity, have access to the equity and make the house what we wanted. You know, yeah, that's insane. And that's how we started to be able to do flipping was we used the equity to work towards the next projects that we had. Yes. Okay. So here's my biggest takeaway. Every time that I get in a conversation with someone who is knowledgeable about real estate investing, like you guys, I feel like it's 
kind of like learning a new language. Like you guys say things and I'm like, okay, I can kind of understand what's going on here. And then I try to vocalize it myself. And I'm like, I do not have the vocabulary for this at all. We're about to go on a trip to Portugal. And so I'm doing Duolingo and it's the same thing. You start understanding things, but you can't vocalize it at all. So bear with me, but that makes total sense. You guys break it down so well. That's phenomenal. So I want to know if you went back in time, knowing all that, you know, now, would you do the same route? Same kind of layout of when you took the HELOC out, using the HELOC, all of that. I think I would do the same thing. I think our first flip was not good. <laughs> they can't see my face. So I should just like, I was like sticking my tongue out doing a thumb down. Like, <laughs> you know, and you learn, but I definitely, definitely encourage the HELOC route. Uh, I was just on a show yesterday and they were like, okay, so many people feel like, dipping your toes into real estate. Like, how do you just like dip your toes in? And we started talking about house hacking. We started talking about using your HELOC. Even if you're not going to use the HELOC to reinvest in real estate, what if you used your HELOC to reinvest in your business? Uh, you know, that's still using real estate to leverage your your money and your wealth. And yeah. so if you're trying to just think of like, okay, it feels like such a high barrier to entry. How do I go from like where I am now to just start investing? I think like looking at your own primary residence and trying to see how can I leverage this asset right now is a great way to start. Mm-hmm. Cool. So this is what feels really mystifying to me. And there might be a really simple answer for this. When we're qualifying for our primary residence, we as entrepreneurs and our entire household is entrepreneur based. That's what all of our income is. In our case, we're taking very aggressive deductions and then our income is showing as a certain amount, right? And so when I'm going to qualify for my primary residence, I'm using up a lot of what I can qualify for. I don't know if that's common, but it are there challenges for entrepreneurs in qualifying for multiple homes? Like when you guys were then using your HELOC to qualify for what would then be the third one. Are there challenges in that? What does that look like? Uh, I thought you were going to go with a different question at the beginning, Tia. So I was preparing for a different one. <laughs> but if you want to, part of it too, as an entrepreneur, like Aaron and I deal with this a lot, especially in real estate, when you talk about depreciating, because we have oh, let's a go. lot of potential depreciation that we can capitalize on. And we have to be careful because your income goes to zero. Yeah, you don't pay taxes, but then you can't buy anything either. So right. there's a yin yang there of like figuring out a healthy balance of having income and making sure you are paying your taxes so that a traditional funding program would qualify you. So if you want yeah. to buy a Fannie Freddie product or something like that, and I say Fannie Freddie, maybe we'll clarify that it would be like the standard conventional mortgage process. So if you wanted to buy a home, you went to your local PNC or Chase Bank or whatever to go get a loan, they would probably have you all qualify across the same set of metrics across the nation. So they have certain metrics for what your debt to income ratio needs to be, what you can bear from a mortgage standpoint. And this is where you would normally buy a home. Mm -hmm. Your second question, would well, that answer the first one a little bit? Yes, like, yes. So the second question, which I think is a really good one, is how do you do a, a lot of these things, right? So if you want to buy a bunch of rental properties, you like you just have to make a pant load of money so that you can qualify for 10 mortgages all at the same time? Like, how does that work? Yes. So I'll answer the question in a Fannie Freddie way, and then I'll answer it in a more creative way. I'm not a mortgage officer. So if you're listening and you want to clarify, go reach out to your local mortgage There's broker. this little like <laughs> disclaimer. Yeah, disclaimer. <laughs> but from what I understand, there is actually a limit to you can only have 10 Fannie Freddie mortgages. Okay. So if you want to scale a big rental portfolio, you're going to peak out at 10. And a lot of times what folks will have to do is they'll get to 10 and then they have to bundle them all into a commercial loan separately. And then it kind of starts your little ticker over again to go get 10 more houses. Um, and honestly, that's kind of how Aaron and I thought we were going to have to do it when we first got into it. Because our first rental, we did a conventional mortgage on and we actually didn't qualify because it was our first home and it wasn't our primary residence. So we actually got a kickback from their little automated system that said, because of a lack of a mortgage experience, we were not qualified. So we had her dad co-sign with us because we had to do mm -hmm. that. So that was a kind of thing. Yeah. Just in the beginning of our story, which is in the other podcast too. Um, so the, there's, there's complications is what I'm trying to get at with Fannie. Yes. There's, there's stipulations on how you qualify it, when you can count rental income. I think there's also stipulations that you have to have rental. You have to be collecting rent for a certain amount of time before you can even okay. count that as income. Not all the time. Can you just assume the value of like, if you want to have a mortgage payment, that's a thousand dollars, but you're renting the house out for 1800, the mortgage company might say, well, I don't care. 
for the, you have to qualify for affording that thousand dollars. And then once you have the 1800 on your second one, then we can count to 18 to cover the first one. And then you need to qualify for the second one. You see how that wow. kind of yeah. domino effect there. It can get kind of complicated. What Aaron and I. So, so before we move to the creative yeah. part, yeah, good stuff. I just want to pause us and say, we're talking about Fanny Freddy, which is not the way that we've been able to scale our portfolio. So, but I just want to highlight what you're saying is important because we are still, so we just bought our second, we bought our second home for us. So we bought our lake house, which we're so, so excited about and proud of. Oh my gosh, you guys, congrats. Yeah. Thank Thank you so much. And a huge part of that was we did have to make sure that we showed good salary, um, from our companies in order to qualify for a second mortgage. And so Brett and I are currently having conversations around like, how much do we want to depreciate? What do like, cause you kind of can like play that game where we could have like a zero tax payment. We could have a, a return in a sense, like, but then you have to make sure like, okay, we want to also make sure, cause we're going to pull a HELOC on the lake house. Okay. Cause you can pull another one. We need to make sure that we look good though to the bank. Right. Right. And so this is an important thing as an entrepreneur where this is why on the other side, I'm saying you must be paying yourself a salary consistent, raise it. And then once the, I think it's like after two years of that history, generally, um, you're going to look good to a bank because mm-hmm. they, it's so funny. Like they think, Oh, because you have an employer and you have a W2, like you're, Oh, you're really looking good. Even though literally you could lose your job tomorrow or even more ironic, or, or they could go bankrupt or they could, or more ironic. What I just think it's so ironic when you start a company, you know, you could start the company Tia and hire, you can't qualify for a mortgage for two years, but you can yes. hire an employee and they could go buy a mortgage, get a mortgage like a month later. So literally. It's crazy how that works sometimes, but they don't value it the same whatsoever that I think that is the most ironic part that I'm like, when we went through our first home buying experience for our primary residence, um, I thought it was devastating. It was just such a shock to me. And I was thought it was insane and it was out of right field. And I was like, what is going on? And then now we have a full-time employee that is going through the home buying process right now. And I'm like, girl, it doesn't even compare. It's not even the same deal. So strange, but I guess to just say to your to your point, if you want to get into real estate investing and the Fannie Freddie route, which is probably the the first way you'll dip your toes in, you do need to make sure you look solid to a bank. Mm-hmm. And so you should be thinking that way um, if that's your plan. Totally. And just like buying a regular house, you get a pre-approval letter. You can go to a bank and say, right now and say, you know, I'm thinking about buying a rental property. What would I what, what am I qualified for? And they'll give you a pre-approval so you'll know your buying power and your reach, even as you look at your first rental that way. Awesome. So that's a great, for the people listening, if you're like, you know, just a first step, go see what you would currently be a pre-approved for based on like, if you're wanting to buy a first home or a new home or a rental property, that's something that you can do right away to just have that knowledge and then talk to your bank. And, you know, we encourage like, working with more local banks, uh, they can get a lot more creative uh, with their financing. And so but rather than a large bank, like a PNC or a Chase. Um, so do that and and then see what would I need to do in order to qualify for more? And like, what would I need to show? And like, kind of ask some questions that help set you up. And I'll just say this, like real estate investing is not a fast money-making machine. So if you're thinking, I want to just get into real estate investing in a couple of years, like retire myself, like I'm just not, from my experience and what we've learned, this is a long-term wealth building thing that can also definitely like cash flow your life as you make it. Um, but you know, we started investing in 2014. It's been nine years. Yeah. So, and, and it snowballs. So it gets easier and, and faster and better, like the longer you're in it. So I would just say like, if this is like your path and you know, the real estate, like know that it's going to take time, go ask those questions, figure out what you need to do. Know that it might mean you literally buy your neck, your inverse investment property in a year or two, like, but 
know that you can get into it. That's just not going to be like super, super fast. But let's talk high level about the creative route. Yes. Is that, does that feel helpful? Yes, yes, yes. I would love that. All right. We're going to get nerdy. So Tia and Aaron, I give you guys both permission to like stop me and make me like interrupt me. Do that, yeah. Seriously, do it. Yes. All right. Put so, your hand up, like, wait. No, you don't have to do that. Um, so, we talk about Fannie Freddie. That's a good context, right? Fannie Freddie, you're if you want to buy a rental property, you and Cameron need to just qualify for it straight up. They mm-hmm. don't even care. They're like, okay, you want to buy a hundred thousand dollar rental? Your mortgage payment is going to be six hundred bucks a month, and this is what you need to be able to pay. Mm-hmm. And if, that, if you guys can afford that in your total, that's income ratio. The bank will be like, cool. They don't right. care if you rent it. They know that okay. you qualify for it. That's, yeah, it's all on you. Yep. We're going to talk about what's called a, it's a commercial loan and there's a lot of different names for it, but we refer to it as a DSCR loan. Okay. It's called another category. People would call this asset-based lending. Okay. So this is not Fannie Freddie. This is going to be a local bank. This is a commercial loan product, which when I, when I say that, what I mean is like our lenders that we work with hold on to these notes in their portfolio. So okay. the bank that we borrow from actually holds our mortgages where Fannie Freddie, the reason they have nationwide stipulations on how they do that is because they'll do, and this is, we don't need to go into this, but this is part of why 2008 happened is they bundle these loans and they'll take your mortgage and 50 other mortgages throughout, you know, your regional area that your banks put together, they bundle it and then they sell it off to a private equity group and they, and they, right. They yeah. How they rated those, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to go there. But the reason they have to have those kind of stipulations across the nation is because you'll get, you might have a mortgage for $250,000, but they're going to bundle you with and make it a $50 million loan. And then they sell that to somebody else. So they have to have the okay. same narrative. When we're doing these, these asset-based loans, you're working with local banks who might have a hundred million dollars in their port in their, in their secured accounts that they would say, okay, we're going to, we want to lend that money out re- regionally. So for us, literally in the state of Indiana is all they will lend to, but they'll, you know, keep the loan and they'll work with us on some of the, of the ways that you're qualified for this. So you have to do some digging on this. You're not going to just be able to like, oh, I want to, you can't just go, none of the big banks will do this. You have to find a local bank that will understand the commercial lending. Uh, the Probably the best way to do it in my experience is find other investors who are scaling in your area and say, where are you placing your debt as okay. refi or whatever you're doing? So asset-based lending is not about you. It's about the house. So you have to th- pretend that the rental property that you're buying is going to have to qualify for its own mortgage is basically what's going to happen. So they, 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 they check you guys out and make sure that you're not a disaster financially. You're not going to go bankrupt. They They're want going to check your credit. They'll so, check your, maybe your PFS yep. personal financial statement. They're going to mm-hmm. see like, you're like a finance, you're financially stable ish, but you're not qualifying for it. The asset is so keep going. So instead of saying, Hey, uh, T and Cam, you guys have to, you know, be able to personally afford this $600 payment right. for this rental property um, before we'll qualify it. They're going to say, um, what is the property currently rented for? So this is, so we'll talk about short-term financing and a different thing. We'll just assume HELOC or cash right now. You bought it with your own cash or your HELOC. And now you're saying, hey, local bank, I have this asset that I purchased. Let's say you bought it for $100,000 and then you cleaned it up a little bit and you... Well, let's say you're all in at a hundred thousand, make it easier. And they would say, okay, cool. What you have this house, what are you renting it for? And you'd say, I'm renting it for hundred or $1,250 a month. And they'll say, okay, great. How much of a loan do you want to get on it? And then they'll factor in the costs of the principal interest, taxes, insurance, property management, vacancy, capital expenditures. They kind of have their formulas okay. and they'll say, okay, if you're renting it for $1,250 a month and it appraises well, then we will give you a loan for that asset so you can pay back your HELOC or your savings account or if you borrow money from somebody else to kind of clean up your debt. And that house qualifies for its own mortgage. Mm. And then you can place notes that way. Does that make can sense? Can we break level? down yeah. a little bit of the percentages generally? So they will generally give you a loan. There's two components that high level that, that will help you understand the amount of the mortgage you are going to be able to qualify for. So there's two. One is generally 75% of the ARV after renovation value. So they're going to make you sit on about 25% of equity and that pads them if 
you know, stuff changes and like whatever, whatever. So that's one part. So you need to have, if you want to have, uh, you know, a mortgage of 150,000, it needs to appraise for 25% more of yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. And then the second thing, so sometimes you're going to get that because you're going to get an appraisal, like some areas that are hot and indie that are up and coming, like we're getting high appraisals for, but we're not getting high rent rate for what's okay. the actual term that we use. So that's the debt service coverage ratio, yeah. the DSCR. DSCR. So here we go. Alphabet soup, but high level, what that means is what you actually get paid in rent has to meet a certain percentage in order okay. for them to also. So like you might like, cool, you check the 75% box, but actually we can't give you a mortgage for 150 because let's just say like the 1% rule, you would have to be able to get 1500 for rent. That'd be like 1% of the hundred. <laughs> Am I doing good? I'm sorry, you guys. I'm getting sick. No, yeah, go on. Perfect. That's a good interruption too, because I think I would take a different <laughs> angle. Okay. Uh, just to, instead of going to the one percent, stick to the the twenty percent profit angle. Why we have to like okay, one point two? You talk about that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Brett, how about? Okay, sorry, Nikki, you're gonna have to edit this. Okay, so then let's have you dive a little bit more specifically into the rental sort of how you qualify from from what you're gonna bring in with rent. So that's called the DSCR, the alphabet soup, as you said. Um. Explain what the DSCR stands the for. The debt service coverage ratio is a ratio of profit they expect on a monthly basis. Like we talked about how the loan qualifies for itself. So our lender requires a 1.2 DSCR, which is the ratio. So they another way of saying it is they want the rental to at least profit 20% monthly. So if you're all your all-in costs for your, like I said earlier, your your mortgage payment, which would be your principal and interest, your property taxes, your monthly insurance your property management, your vacancy, which they usually do some kind of small like percentage for the year, three or so percent. Okay. And they'll have capital expenditure sometimes factored in. And when capital expenditures are things that no matter what happens, you have to pay for it. So every 30 years you need a roof. These are things that always come up. Okay. They make you budget for that in this number. So let's say all those six or seven things add up to $1,000. In order for the DSCR ratio to be met, then you need to make sure you're renting that house for at least $1,200 a month. Okay. So they want to make sure that you're profiting because they're not going to give you a loan for a house that's negative, right? Because then you're just losing money. Some are right. doing that right now with the market the way that it is, but then you have a lot more personal guaranteeing to do weird stuff there. But I would advise anyone doing a DSCR asset-based loan to always make sure that there's a profit ratio there because that's the point, right? You know, the point's not to just hold on to debt and wait for it to get paid off. You want to actually have positive cash flow as well. So Okay. So let's just pause there. Does that make sense from a high level of like, you can get creative and in this instance, working with a local bank that works with investors, you're not going to have to qualify the, for the mortgage after you refinance, which is at the end of the Burr method, buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. That refinance part is going to be done not qualifying you. And so it allows you to uh, start to build your portfolio outside of your own. You got to figure out how to front the the finances at the beginning, but then you've got someone who's going to refinance your money out and help you keep going. Yeah. So in that refinance portion, you guys mentioned like paying off the HELOC, for example, are you guys generally, when you're building out your portfolio, going back, paying off things to continue, or are you going forward? Does that make sense? Can you ask it again in a little different way? Like, are we leaving money in the deals? Are we, what are you, what are you asking there? So I know you're leaving money in the deals, but when you refinance at the end there, are you then using that money when you, that you got from the refinance to purchase another property or are you going back paying off the HELOC at some point? So the goal for us, like if we get like a, we actually have a spreadsheet that turns red, yellow, or green depending on like red is an absolute, it's a no go <laughs> yellow's like, Meh, and green's like, it's a go. So we have certain principles that we like hold by. So let's just say in the most ideal situation, we would be able to, once we refinance, get all of our money back out. Okay. So it's like, we put in 50,000 and because of how much it appreciated, the 75% doesn't cut into any of the money here. 
and we're able to get it all back out and keep going. And so we just can like recycle the money. Okay. But many times what happens is you end up leaving money because remember, you're only getting 75% of the appraised value. Yeah. So 25%, which is like but on our PF personal financial statement, which Brent loves update, I'm like, okay, cool. But I want the cash flow to feel good in my life now. I want to go on the vacation, you know. You're still like showing like that's fifty thousand dollars more in my like mm, wealth. Yeah, like, I see. Because if I sell that asset, like I have that, but I don't have it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Tied up. So it's tied up because of that twenty five percent there. So we might leave, let's say we leave $20,000 in the deal, mm-hmm. which we, 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 we will leave $20,000. Like, okay, we refinance and we look at that. But let's say that we profit after PITI, principal interest, tax insurance, all the stuff Brent just talked about. Like our actual profit from the asset is $900 um, a, a month. So that times 12 is 10080 bucks $800 so we'll just say 10,000 for easy math you would that's like a 50% annualized rate of return on our money like we put 20 in and we make 10,000 every year you would like sign up for that like every day 100% um, if you were investing in stock market or or some other other way so the, that's the way we kind of have to make decisions is like looking at that annualized rate of return. Also just looking at our current cash pile. Like, can we afford to leave twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in the deal? Um, and that's why we have to flip. Yes. So I don't know if you want us to go into that. Um, I know you had like kind of a question on our diversification. So we can talk about that a little bit, but did that answer that question for you? Totally. Yeah. And I think a great place to hear just like the holistic view is what is you guys' current diversification and what's the goal? I know you guys have some huge lofty goals, but where does that kind of want to lead to? Yeah. I feel like this is a great question for us to wrap up this conversation with. I love it. So, and I think I will say like, it was kind of discouraging when we first got started and I was figuring out all these kind of walls I was hitting with the Fannie Freddie loan products around trying to scale a portfolio. I'm like, you're kidding me. I can only have 10 or like, and then I got to figure out how to qualify for this giant loan and refinance that. And yeah, how am I going to get to where I want to go? Cause I didn't, I, we did one and one was great, but like one, 10 doesn't even get you. I mean, 10 will be a great retirement in 30 years, but to get to where you want it to become a business or like a lifestyle thing. Yes. It's just not, it, it's just not there. And finding the ability to work with local lenders that changed the metric of how you can go about scaling was everything for us. It literally changed our business uh, or changed it. And actually it changed our hobby into a business. So it was able for us to really scale enabled us to really scale. I would say scaling the portfolio came into the vision of what we're able to go and do because of that. And because of that relationship with our lender, because now. I think that and also the ability to get creative with, getting our financing so we are able to use the HELOC uh but also hard money lending is so important and we can have a whole episode on that but basically being able to in that meantime of buying the home and renovating all that you're going to need hundreds of thousands of dollars that isn't our hundreds of thousands of dollars so generally we can get somebody to lend us money and it's hard money lending because they're lending against the home an actual asset versus unsecured debt which is just giving us money and, and getting, you know, we have both, we work with both. So you can generally, if you work with a hard money lender, you get, you only have to pay 10% of purchase price and they typically fund a hundred percent of renovation. Mm, wow. Out of interest, right? So then right. you're paying interest every month on that. So, but you, so you generally, you would have to have money to cash flow the initial like, okay, we demoed and we did this and this, and now we want to draw on that money. So generally I say you need about $40,000 a house as a safe number across the nation. It's going to be different depending on what type of asset. So like, I just like to say that because most people think they need all of the cash to make their first investment and you don't need that. So just saying that those two things, like having the refinance partner that we do and having hard money lenders and unsecured money, which for some people starting out, the HELOC is a great option. We mm-hmm. have people who lend to us and then they make interest monthly. 
has been the game changer for mm-hmm. us. But to answer your question about like, where, uh, let's talk about our goal and then sort of how we're getting there based on how yeah, we're yeah, diversifying yeah. our portfolio. So our goal is that we can retire in five years. And even though we're saying retire, we call it, I, I heard this from a, a recent mentor and friend, a uh, new friend, and he called it desirement. And so that's what we're going to call it is desirement. And in that sense, it means like we no longer have to work in order to live. Yeah, I love it. So money is not an object, but, and yesterday on, on an interview, someone asked me, so what will your life look like when you're retired? And I said, a lot like how it looks right now. Probably doing a lot more of my podcasting and my coaching, a little less real estate, but I love, I mean, I'm an Enneagram three. I'm going to keep freaking working. Uh, Maybe a little, maybe a little more travel, a little more time at the lake house. Yeah. But like, so desirement meaning like, okay, no, the, the, the reason I work is different. Totally. So that's in five years. So I will be 40. Brent is 33 years younger than me. So he'll be 37. And actually we had a goal of three years and then we had to like reassess, like how stressed out do we want to be to get there? And so yeah. we, we know that that's like kind of a floating number out there. I think it'd be fun to say I retired by 40, maybe even 39. That'd be fun to be retired in my thirties, but I love it. <laughs> um, so the way we get to that is by the amount of doors that we own and doors, just to clarify that is literally doors so it's like if I have a single family home it's one if I have a duplex it's two doors if I have a triplex it's three doors and so on and so right now we have 20 doors in our portfolio I love it and we have an we have a whole spreadsheet that we have that says tells us what we profit per door after all the things that we sort of talked about and so we have an average profit of around 450 500 ish is what we're kind of going to hope to maintain and so our goal to desirement is we need about 50 to 60 doors and that will help us cash flow the lifestyle, the rent rate and profit. Like we can like live off of that and and sort of like that's how we're getting to qualify and say retirement. Um, the way we're going to get there. So the how do we add 30 to 40 doors to our portfolio in the next yeah. five years is through like the team that we have right now. So we are more than just Brent and Aaron. We have three full-time employees that help us buy, run construction, run the dispo of the asset, which is like either getting it ready for refinance or selling it and then property management. So we have a team that really like helps us do that. And to be transparent, you know, we, and I've probably talked about this on the episode recently, like uh, Brent and I recently split with our business partner amicably in October. And so, um, you know, we're still figuring out how do we like best utilize our team? How do we best utilize our money? Now it's all on us. Like it's, we're not sharing the vision with someone else. We're not sharing the, the load with someone, you know, all of that. But basically how we're going to do it is we're going to flip to offset the cost of, of the employees of the payroll of the business and to offset the cash that we leave in our rentals okay yeah and so we have to do like a certain amount of flips and this also depends on like there's a you know a whole we have we have a whole thing where you building to forecast all this stuff but if it's a large flip and we make two hundred thousand dollars that's different than a small flip that makes us 40,000. And so I can't fully say like, this is how many flips we have to do a year, right. but we have a certain amount of money we have to make from flipping to cash flow the business and to keep us able to like, you know, we will run out of money if we keep leaving money in the next 40, 50 homes, um, 30 to 40 homes. Okay. So that's why we flip. And we flip in two ways. We flip to, and then you can talk about the rental stuff uh, a little bit more, babe. But we flip to either sell to the market to a buyer like on the MLS, on Zillow, or we can flip an asset that then somebody who is an investor who doesn't want to do the Burr method, they don't want to have to go find it. They don't want to manage the construction. They just want to buy it at a higher premium, but it's still a great rate. 
that that they're just going to buy a turnkey property. Oh, I did not know this. Okay. Yes. So this could be something that you do as well. Uh, So we sell to investors rentals. So we, we, we buy rentals sometimes and we're like, we could keep it in the portfolio or if we need the cash, we can sell it. Yeah, I see. And so that's how we're going to get there, babe. Do you want to say anything more about the the rental side of things and sort of how we assess that or how we decide like it's going to be something we add to our portfolio to, in order to get us to our retirement desire? Yeah, I think goal. the clearest uh, metric that Aaron already mentioned is just making sure that it hits the monthly profit because um, there's kind of a the, the language is a cash on cash return. So Aaron had talked about like if we leave 20,000 in a deal and you make 10,000 a year, then your cash on cash return because um, it's not a return on the whole asset, right? Because the whole asset might be worth 200,000, but we only have $20,000 of our personal money that we have left in the, yep. in the deal, uh, be, you know, beyond like the, the mortgage or whatever. So that's a huge one for us to keep our, our an eye on is if the cash on cash is good. Uh, if the monthly profit is hitting our metric, we really like to hit at least $400 a month. And there's another metric that comes up later. That's a little bit different. And people don't really talk about this much is, at least I haven't heard it, is return on equity. So we have to always be thinking about, so we have some of our higher performing um, assets are appreciating so much that it comes a point when you it's worth selling. You flip the narrative of like, if I'm only making $10,000 a year, but I have $150,000 in equity in this thing, well, I'm only getting a one and a half percent return on my equity. So okay. it might be actually in a way I use, I really, one of the things I'm going to do in desirement is I'm going to start a hobby farm and Aaron hates that, but we're going to do it. Oh my I, gosh. I, I love it. So, so for me, I use language of like thinning the herd, a sense like you have a, there's some, there's sometimes you just like have a cow that's like ready to not be a cow anymore. Um, be a hamburger. Yeah. And there's just certain <laughs> houses. Sorry if there's any vegetarians out here. Um, <laughs> but in the same way, there's certain properties that just don't make sense to hold on to that way when yeah. you can liquidate it. And then redeploy that hundred thousand across, maybe you know, a four or five more deals that we leave that twenty thousand in, and it makes more sense from a total investment standpoint. Now, does it feel great to have the equity in the in our portfolio and our net worth? Oh, absolutely. And is there ways to do little fun monopoly games with that equity later in life? Yeah, but sometimes along the way you have to make those calls. So with that, and then also if there's assets that just aren't performing the way we want it to. We have pretty high expectations because of how we get to where our rentals are. Most people don't make $400 a door. That's a pretty high okay. expectation. Um, a lot of investors will be okay with $150 a month in profit for a rental. We're doing so much sweat equity in the Burr method in the beginning that we have higher expectations and we- We get, get to be picky. To, we get to be picky. And we, yeah. if something falls below that $400 a month threshold, it's still a great investment for somebody else, just not for us. So we'll, we'll liquidate at that point too. Okay. Wow. Amazing, you guys. Any, okay, I want to just point one last thing out about this, like, sort of last question you had around uh, desirement and all retirement and all that. Yep. Not only, I just want to highlight that not only are, and this is why real estate is so freaking amazing, is that it is not just the cash flow. And that's what we're talking about that qualifies us to get to desirement. But now we have 50, 60 homes that our tenants are paying down the mortgage for. And so we are going to, you know, some homes we've owned for for five years and our mortgages are typically like 25 years. Yeah, there's weird stuff. So anyways, in 20 years, we will have not paid for that mortgage. We will have gotten money every month in profit and we're buying strategically where appreciation is happening. So it's not that like I'm going to then sell for the exact amount of the mortgage. I'll probably sell for 20% more, 30% more, depending on, you know, that's yeah, whatever, the, whatever you, you know, right. your area is. So, so people are like, so what's like Ava's college? Oh, that house right there. That's going to pay for Ava's college. Right. Yeah. It's because, insane. Yeah. Because like in 20 years, you know, and it's still cash flowing or whatever, or even sooner I could, I could liquidate stuff and like, hundreds of thousands and ultimately whatever our portfolio is tens of millions will be money that we have outright because our tenants paid for it and right. that's the beauty of real estate is it's so powerful cash flow and it's cash piles love that insane 
Okay, so Tia, was this a helpful conversation for you as you have been interested in real estate, but feeling like there's so many mysteries behind it? What do you feel like's been, I don't know, the most important takeaway for you or or thought that you're going to keep thinking through as we wrap up the combo right now? So helpful. I feel like, like I was saying, so often I get a little invested in this. I'm like, okay, let's start Googling things. Let's start looking up stuff. I don't really know where to look for resources. And you guys have been this insane resource where even just my simple question of like, hey, can I use HELOC on my home right now? Even though I haven't done any sort of renovation, getting simple answers that have clarity like that is so powerful and just allows so much accessibility, accessibility to all of your listeners. Yay. Yay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited for you. I know that you have an incredibly successful um, company and I'm excited for you to keep learning about real estate. An amazing resource that I think we've mentioned before is the Bigger Pockets, their podcasts, their blog, their forums. Amazing. There's also the book on rental properties. Really, really creative um, title. But anybody that we do real estate coaching for or just talk about, that's a book that we really recommend our, our people to read. And so um, I recommend that to you. And like, thank you so much for your time, for being so like curious and just allowing us to be able to facilitate such an organic conversation around this. Totally. Thank you guys so much. This was a blast. Yay. Yay. Are you a creative entrepreneur looking for next level support when it comes to your money mindset and management? It's time to get on top of your numbers once and for all. Do you want to upgrade your lifestyle, make a bigger impact in the world, or gain more time back into your day? Your big dreams are all coming back to one thing, money. So I've developed a secret sauce money matrix formula to combine the power of an abundance mindset with money management tools specifically for creative entrepreneurs like you. Stop hiding from your numbers and start getting strategic. Head to www.aaronbridgman.com to learn everything you need to know about my coaching programs. It's time to completely transform and change the way you view and manage money so you can show up like the wealthy woman you are meant to be. Apply to work with me one-on-one at www.aaronbridgman.com.